We have been in this series called Outlining the Story, where we're going through kind of the, the broad overview of the Old Testament. And we started in the beginning with kind of these first principles that are being laid out for us, God being creator, thus being uh, in control of everything, uh, everything being his, including us, right? We are his, and we're made to image him, and that was his original intent for us. But we chose wrongly, right? We don't image him very well anymore. And then we have this long period of history in which humanity, I guess we would hope that humanity would get back on track. We don't. In fact, it gets far, far worse. So God uh, wipes everyone off the planet except for this one guy and his family. Uh, and we would think, hey, maybe this is going to work out well because now we've kind of gotten rid of all the evil people and we've got the good people left. And we find out very quickly that the good people are also the evil people. And so they continue those problems. We uh, forward 150 years and then we have uh, humanity uh, as a group continuing to make bad choices, trying to work independently of God. And so we ended right before we got into Abraham last week, with this kind of bleak picture of humanity, which we should have. And I think I would recommend just generally coming from that worldview, that we should have a bleak picture of humanity in general. Today, we should have a bleak picture of what humans are capable of, because humans are depraved. And the only thing that keeps us kind of in line and doing good things is pressure, social pressure, laws, things that, you know, cultural standard. That's the only thing that really keeps us in line these days. And most of the time, it doesn't keep us in line because those things shift and they're, they're away from God's will, right? So we have this really bleak picture of humanity, and then we have this kind of new chapter in human history in which God begins to work with this guy named Abraham. And he decides to work with Abraham through uh, what we call a covenant, uh, which is just, uh, we talked about this last week, it's just this binding agreement, right? This contractual agreement where both parties have responsibilities to one another, and as long as they both hold to the contract, things are going to go well with the contract, right? And, and so we saw that kind of being established early on uh, with Abraham, and we're going to see how that kind of works uh, in the rest of Abraham's life today. So let me pray for us. Lord... As we get into this, to these chapters of Genesis today, may you just help us to see this plan that you're starting to reveal in the life of Abraham, this plan that begins and ends with faith, and that our responsibility to you today, just like it was for Abraham, was to live in this trusting relationship with you. And so may we just uh, witness that in the life of Abraham, uh, in what you were doing with him, and may we be uh, inspired to kind of follow suit in our own life, because if we know anything, we know that you are trustworthy. We know that you will come through on the things that you've promised, and so uh, we want to live in this place of trust, and we want to live in a place of, of complete trust which is what we see in Abraham's life. So may we just witness that today in him, and may, we just, may you just expose areas of our own hearts where maybe we're not doing that. Pray this all in your name. Amen. So uh, we saw last week that Abraham and, and Yahweh, God, make this agreement, right? And this is how the agreement goes. It says, Now Yahweh said to Abram, who is Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house, to a land which I will show you. 
right? This is Abraham's responsibility in this contractual agreement that they're making. He needs to leave his house, which Abram did. He, he committed to walking away from his home, which was really his clan, his people group, which meant leaving protection and security and his future, his future economic growth uh, was all wrapped up in his family. He's leaving all of that which required something very, very important in Abraham, which was a trust in what Yahweh was going to do, right? He had to move his trust from his family and his, his kind of city-state, his people group, his clan, and he had to place his trust in his creator. And Abraham did that. He chose to trust Yahweh, and he just started walking. He took his immediate family and some of his servants, and they left And God said this to him. He said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he said, if you do your part of the contract here, Abraham, then I will do my part, which is I will make make from you a great people. That, that includes um, numbers and strength and power and, um, and wealth and influence. I will make you great. Your people will be great. And not only that, but you yourself will be great. You will have wealth and influence and strength and power. And others will benefit from your wealth and influence and strength and power. And we see that actually in the life of Lot, right? Lot benefits really greatly from it, right? And then he says... To those who treat you well, I will treat them well. To those who treat you badly, I will treat them badly, right? And so what, we, what you have is this picture, and we see it in this situation with Sarah and Pharaoh, right? Where Pharaoh takes Sarah into his household, kind of oblivious to the situation that Sarah is Abraham's wife. And, and we have all this bad stuff going on to Pharaoh, right? Which is God keeping his promises to Abraham, And he says, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And we talked about this last week, that Abraham didn't really know what this meant. Uh, He knew that all the families of the earth would be blessed, but he didn't know what that looked like. His descendants didn't really know what that looked like. Moses, when he's writing this, doesn't even really know what that looks like. He just knows that God had made this promise. Now, we know what that looks like because we are the blessed, right? We are those who have been blessed because of this covenant that God made with Abraham. He goes on to add a little bit to this contract to clarify it and to bring some definition to it. He says, so they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now now the Canaanites were in the land at the time, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to Yahweh who had appeared to him. So he and his family group, they go to Canaan, and God says, you know what? Not only are you going to have this, this people that will come from you, and they will be great, but you also, will also have a land in which your people will live. You will have physical borders, and you're standing right in the middle of that land, Abram. Now, an important thing to understand about this particular promise, this particular part of the contract is, uh, Abraham never saw the fulfillment of this, Right? It's much later, it's hundreds of years later, that the fulfillment of this actually occurs. But he trusted in the God who could come through on this, right? In the next couple of chapters, 13 and 14, we see God fulfilling his promises. That's really what we covered last week, right? God fulfilling his promises. And he finishes 
uh, this, this section with this incident is where we finished last week, where Lot and Abraham are so wealthy, like God is so blessing what's going on there, that they have to split up. And he tells Lot, hey, pick wherever you want to go, right? And Lot picks the best place to go, right? It was beautiful. It was like the Garden of Eden. There was water everywhere. It was everything that, that either of them wanted, but Lot chose that spot. And Abram went the other way, right? But then we know what happens. Lot gets captured, right? Abraham has to come bail him out. And then it ends with this picture of these kings coming to Abraham and honoring him, right? Because what they couldn't do in winning that battle, Abraham did in winning that battle. And actually, Yahweh did in blessing Abraham by winning that battle, right? That's right before 15, which is where we're really starting today. Let's look at that. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be great, very great. But Abram said, Yahweh God or actually this time it's actually Lord Yahweh is actually how it, how it is here. Lord Yahweh, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Abram also said, since you have given me no son, one who has been born in my house will be my heir. God up to this point had proven himself to be a promise keeper over and over and over again, right? We just, we dwelt on that a lot last week. He just kept keeping his promises, and Abraham, Abraham clearly trusts God, right? He just continues to hold to this contract between him and God, knowing that God is going to come through for him. And in fact, we have the scene right before this in which um, Abraham gives back the spoils to the king of Sodom and says, I'm not going to let you enrich me because I don't need you to enrich me, right? I have Yahweh who's enriching me. I trust him. So I'm going to give you back all your stuff because I don't need it. I know Yahweh's going to come through. But he asks a legitimate question here. Because of the promises that had been made to Abraham, there's a real problem in, there's a real just kind of logical problem here. How can God make Abraham into a great nation when he has no kids? He doesn't even have a single child at this point. It makes no sense. I mean, this question makes a whole lot of sense because actually the first thing we see when we learn about Sarah we learn this. Sarai, which is Sarah, was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. She had no children, and she couldn't conceive. How does this work, right? He's asking a very legitimate question, because the heir of his house would be this guy, Eleazar, which is, uh, was very common back then if you couldn't have children, right, and you never had a child, that, that later in life, you would take one of your servants and you would basically adopt them as your heir, and you would leave all your stuff to them. Because if you die and there's no heir, that's a real problem, right? So if you have no kids, you got to leave it to someone who's not your own kid. And that's what he's saying. He's like, you know what, I'm going to have to leave this to one of my male servants. And that's like a last resort. Nobody wants to do that because we want to leave all this wealth to our kids and if God's going to fulfill the contract, it can't be left to Eleazar. It has to be left to a kid of Abraham, right? Very legitimate question. This is what happens. Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. 
And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Is he able to count them? No, right? And he said, so shall your descendants be. This is good stuff because he's like, you know what? Let me just clarify. It will be from your own body. You will have a kid that has your genes, and that kid will have kids, and those kids will have kids and kids and kids and kids and kids, on and on and on. And actually, it's, um, they will get so numerous that no one will be able to put a number on how many, how many descendants you have. And this is actually true today. No one has any idea how many Jewish people there have been on the earth since this time. No clue, right? Has it been a lot? Crazy a lot, right? We don't even know. We don't, we don't even have a, a close estimate. Just way too many, right? Not too many, but the right amount, but a lot, right? From you. The problem still is he doesn't even have one descendant at this point, right? And he's old, and his wife, who has never had a child, which in those days was a pretty clear indicator that she would never have a child, right? Because they they've been trying their whole lives, their whole married life together. And not only is she barren, like can't have children, but she's also now past the age of childbearing, right? These are all real problems, but don't seem to be a problem for Abraham because look at the very next verse. Then he believed in Yahweh, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This word believed in, which in Hebrew is amen, means to to trust in, to consider the person you're placing your trust in as trustworthy. He listened to all of what Yahweh had to say, which was all pretty fantastical, like, what? And he didn't question it. He didn't go, hey, this, no, there's no way this is going to happen. I'm super old, right? Sarah's super old. Like, like this is, there's no way this is going to go down. He didn't do any of that. At least we don't have it in the text. He simply considered Yahweh trustworthy. And so if Yahweh said something, and he did, he believed it. He said, sure. And this is cool. God credited it to him as righteousness. Righteousness means the sta- God's standards are met. Right? God's standard of justice is met. Think about it. All the wrong that had been done up to this point in human history, right? We've covered all of just the messed upness of our world and our, and our, our human race, You have Adam and Eve sinning very early and breaking the world, right? The world has continued to be broken, but they really, really messed it up. And all man's empty attempts at at kind of righting what was wrong, just failing miserably, right? The failure of Cain, the failure of those 1,800 years of human history that ended with every intent of every thought was only evil continually. What a condemnation of humanity, The failure right after getting rid of all the people of Noah's son, Ham. Like, just showing, man, we're just messed up. The very next story being the failure at the tower, right? Of them trying to build this tower to make a name for themselves and to collect themselves instead of scattering themselves like he called them to. And and God going, man, they are capable of anything. 
all this failure leading up to this moment where this man, Abraham, was made right. All this wrong trailing humanity and now made right. And here's the really, really important thing for us. He wasn't made right by himself, right? Abraham did not make himself right. Abraham did not do enough right to make himself right, right? We saw plenty of wrong that Abraham was doing, right? Throwing his wife under the bus, all that kind of stuff, right? A lot of bad stuff for him. Abraham didn't make himself right. Righteous living did not make himself right. Some sort of right religious practices did not make himself right. Some sort of spirituality or, or inner you know, introspection, some sort of in, inner spiritual journey did not bring him to the place where he was right. There was no other means by which Abraham was made right but by God simply crediting him righteousness. He looked at Abraham and he said, Abraham, you trust me. And that trust is not enough to make him right. But he said, you know what? I'm going to choose out of my gracious nature to credit you righteousness, to consider you righteous even though you are far from that thing, and restoring the relationship between God and man. And it was all because Abraham decided to stop trusting in himself to stop trusting in his surroundings and what was logical and right and just seemed like the way to live life. And he placed all of his trust in Yahweh and said, whatever, whatever you want, I'm going to do it. And he was credited righteousness. The point on your handout, if you want to look at it, is even though Abraham was unrighteous, God treated him as righteous in response to his willingness to trust God with his life. Even though Abraham was unrighteous, God treated him as righteous in response to his willingness to trust God with his life. The rest of chapter 15, God goes through this covenant ritual with Abraham, Abram, where they, uh, they saw some animals in half God walks through, he actually floats through the middle of them, which was basically them signing the contract, okay? They didn't have, like, these written contracts in which they put this little, you know, squiggly signature on it. That's what we have today when we do contracts, right? They had splitting animals in half and walking through them, which is just weird. But it's the way that ancient Near Eastern contracts worked at the time. Covenants worked at the time. So God does this, right, to sign the contract. Then... In chapter 16, you got about 10 years going by, still no promised son, right? He promises a son here, a son that will come from your body, Abraham. 10 years have gone by, and Sarah tries to create an heir through her servant, okay? Which, by the way, was not unusual at the time. 
if the uh, woman of the house was, uh, was barren, was unable to have kids, it was very, very common to, uh, ha- to give a servant to the husband and have a child through that servant. And then legally, actually, that child would become the heir of both Abraham and Sarah. They would become their child, right? So she's trying to do this thing, right? And trying to, you know, make it work because it would have been through Abraham's line, right? So they do have a, a kid there. But this happens in 17, right after that. It says, now, when Abraham was 99 years old, he's an old guy, Yahweh appeared to Abraham and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant with me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Abraham just means father of many, father of a multitude, right? So he changes his name. He's kind of clarifying the covenant again. He's rehashing some stuff we already know, adding some detail to it. He keeps going. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give you and to your descendants after you the land where you, you live as a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, I will be their God. He calls Abraham here to be blameless, which, which literally in this context means to be, to be completely faithful to the covenant, completely faithful to this contract. Do whatever I ask you to do. That's the contract, right? I will make this covenant with you. And not only will I make this covenant with you, But now he says, I'm also going to extend this contract and reaffirm this contract to your kid and your kid's kids and your kid's kid's kids and all the generations going forward, I'm going to renew this contract with them. I have a contract with you, I'll also have a contract with them. And so this contract can actually exist perpetually because I'm going to give it to each generation after each generation after each generation. And the promises that I've made uh, available to you, I'm going to make promises available to your people after you. They will have many descendants. There will be many people groups. There will be a a land with borders that will be theirs. And I'm going to continue to make this contract over and over again, generation after generation. This is important to understand. Look at the next verse. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant that you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations, including a slave who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A slave who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall certainly be circumcised. So my covenant will be with your flesh as an everlasting covenant. But as for an uncircumcised male, one who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. 
Are you tracking what, he, what he's going through here? He's like, I just told you what I would do, what my part of the contract is. But you've got to understand, a contract is a contract. A contract's similar to what it is today. This covenant is a contract, which means there's two sides. That's the whole point of a contract, right? There's two sides to the story. And he's saying, you know what? I've told you what I'm going to do. Now listen to what you need to do and what your descendants need to do after you, which is that they need to keep the contract. And part of that contract is, the keeping of that contract is going to be this thing, circumcision, which is basically like every generation after you, every person, every male is going to re-sign that contract and commit to being committed to that contract, to be committed to that covenant. And if they don't, that's verse 14, if they don't, if they're not willing to sign the contract, if they're not willing to commit to the covenant, then they need to be cut off. They need to be separated. They need to go away because they're not part of the covenant people of God. They're not part of this contract. And, and if they refuse to sign this contract, they can never be a part of this contract. The important thing to understand with this, and this is really, really true, it, it's kind of the key thing of everything else we're going to go through in the Old Testament, is this covenant is a conditional covenant. It requires that both sides keep up their end of the bargain. Is Yahweh going to keep up his end of the bargain? No question. And we'll see throughout the Old Testament, he never fails to keep up his end of the bargain. But it also requires that Abraham and the people after him keep the covenant, keep the contract, commit to the contract. Because if they break the contract, God is under no obligation to keep his end. It's conditional. Goes on in 15. Then God said to Abraham, as for your wife Sarah, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. And then I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. So he's clarifying, you know what, not only are your descendants going to be of your genetics, but also going to be of Sarah's genetics. So this other child that's been born that's not of Sarah's line, then uh, that person is not going to be a part of the covenant. And that, that is true. The child Ishmael was not a, a part of the covenant, even though God made some promises to Ishmael and Hagar. He's not a part of the covenant people that the covenant would come through Sarah and this child, Isaac. Now look at 23. It says, Then Abraham took his son Ishmael and all the slaves who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on this very same day, as God had said to him. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and his son Ishmael was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. On the very same day, Abraham was circumcised as well as his son Ishmael, and all the men of his house, those who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. That is a long paragraph that says one thing, Abraham did it. Right? God said, here's, here's how you need to keep the contract with me. This is how you demonstrate that you're committed to the contract, is you and all of your people need to all be circumcised. And Abraham did it. Immediately. 
In fact, it says, as God had said to him. That statement simply means the exact detail in which God had detailed his covenant. That's exactly what Abraham did. Precisely what was called for. Demonstrating once again that Abraham trusted God and was committed to this contract. Chapter 18 is full of specifics on Isaac's birth, which hadn't happened yet, but he's talking about it. And then God plans to bring uh, justice on Sodom and Gomorrah. Decided that I'm going to bring some justice on these two people groups, okay? Look what happens in 18. Very interesting little picture here. It says, Yahweh said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation... And in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that Yahweh may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. What's really cool about this next little picture here is you get this sense of this covenant relationship truly being a relationship right? One in which Abraham was depending upon Yahweh and they were actually interacting with one another. And Yahweh is kind of working through, hey, should I go and do this thing? Show justice uh, to Sodom and Gomorrah. Justice is deserved here. I'm going to met out my justice and just take care of it. Or should I include Abraham in what I'm about to do? Should I fill him in? And the reason for it is he says, I'm trying to show him, Abraham, and the people how to do righteousness and justice. And so he's like, I'm going to help show them how to live rightly, which is righteousness, and how to bring about the proper ends to wrong behavior, which is justice. And he decides to include Abraham in this. And then we get this long conversation between Abraham and God. Where Abraham's like trying to figure out, hey, what's actually just here? Is this just, Yahweh? And Yahweh says, yeah, that's just. Is this just? Yeah, that's just. Is this just? Yeah, I think that's just. Right? And they're having this interaction and really bringing Abraham into the conversation. Right? What's the proper treatment for right behavior, God? What's the proper punishment for wrong behavior, God? What are the extents to which justice is served if we do it that particular way? If we do it this particular way, is that justice, God? If we do it this particular way, is that justice, God? And they have this long conversation. It's, it's just cool. Because what we see here and what we should learn about this, and I think it's what Moses is trying to communicate to us in this section is, this thing, this faith relationship that we have with God is truly a relational thing right? It's a dependency upon God, and it's God walking with us, walking next to us in life. So the point on your handout, if you want to fill it in, is the trusting relationship established between Abraham and God in the covenant would also be offered to his descendants. The trusting relationship established between Abraham and God in the covenant would also be offered to his descendants. 
Then we have right after this in chapter 19, Abraham actually watching God dispense justice on Sodom and Gomorrah. He's standing kind of up on a hill and he's looking at Sodom and Gomorrah and he, and he watches God obliterate these two peoples. Uh, and he sees the smoke rising. But what's interesting out of this is because of this relationship that Abraham has with Yahweh, Lot and his family end up coming out and not being destroyed. But what's kind of interesting about that is, and, and the reason why they're not destroyed is because it's this conversation about righteous people. Like, should we save righteous people, right? So this family of Lot gets saved because they're righteous. But then immediately after that, as they come out, we have Lot's wife disobeying God and turning into a pillar of salt. And then right after that, we have Lot's girls having this incestuous relationship with him, right? There's no righteousness in us. There's no righteousness in humanity, no righteousness of our own, that even the righteous people are shown to be not so righteous, right? Chapter 20, we have kind of this repeat situation. It's kind of that the whole Pharaoh-Sarah situation. Uh, this is like part two of that. Uh, it's almost the exact same situation where basically Abraham offers Sarah up to this other king, King Abimelech. Things go bad for Abimelech. Abimelech gives Abraham a bunch of stuff. He profits a ton. Abimelech honors Abraham, is actually super scared of Abraham, right? Just shows that God is continuing with his covenant, right? Then we have this in 21. Since then Yahweh took note of Sarah as he had said, and Yahweh did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, and the son to whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Yahweh comes through as he's been coming through this whole time. He keeps his promise exactly as he had promised. Did you notice that phrase in there? Exactly as he had promised and exactly at the appointed time that God comes through on his part of the contract on time every time. This is our promise-keeping God. And this was despite all odds, right? At this point, Sarah is unable to have kids, and she has a kid. She's 90 years old, which is very much past the age of childbearing, and he comes through with the promises. Uh, Abraham is 100 years old. He's beyond what would be considered childbearing years for him. God comes through, right? Abraham comes through on his part. He names the boy Isaac, which was part of the commitment he had to God. It's what God asked him to do right? He uh, circumcises Isaac on the eighth day, exactly what God asked him to do. He is fulfilling this contract that he has with Abraham, right? With God, that Abraham is fulfilling the contract he has with Yahweh. And we can just see once again, God doing his part, fulfilling the promises, Abraham doing his part by doing what God asked him to do. And then it gets extreme. Take a look at this. Chapter 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. 
offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. God is testing Abraham. Now, let me be very, very clear. You guys have heard me talk about this before. The idea of testing biblically is not, hey, pass or fail. Let me throw this out there and see if you can float, right? See if you can make it. See if you can get an A or an F on the test. That's not what this is about. Testing is about showing, demonstrating the quality of something. Yahweh was doing this to demonstrate the quality of Abraham's faith. It's not that Abraham suddenly had faith. It's not suddenly that Abraham was emboldened to do this thing. It's that Abraham had this pre-existing condition of having faith. And this testing was just to reveal the faith that Abraham already had. This moment was meant to reveal that. But this is crazy. Can we agree? Like God's like, go kill your kid. And it's not just about killing your kid, which is insanity, right? But beyond killing your kid, you're killing the only way that God can fulfill his part of the covenant, right? You're getting rid of the vehicle by which God is fulfilling his covenant because Yahweh was very, very clear that Isaac was going to be the one through which the covenant was going to go through. And now we're taking him out too. This is insanity, Look at verse 3. So Abraham got up early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he split the wood for the burnt offering. And he set out and went to the place which God had told him. Skipping down to verse 9, it says, Then they came to the place which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and Abraham reached out with his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, there might have been some hemming and hawing going on with this request, but the narrative doesn't reveal any of that. So the narrative is not, is not trying to tell us that they had some sort of a tussle over this in which Abraham's like, what are you doing? Like, this doesn't make any sense. We don't have any of that. Instead, what we have is Abraham going, okay. You're making this insane request, Yahweh, and my response to you is I trust you. They didn't have hours of theological wrangling over the implications of, of, and the moral implications of taking a life, right? Or the theological implications of God making this kind of a request, which all these questions come up with theologians all the time, and I just go, that's not the point. The point is, Abraham said, sure, yeah, saddled the donkey, split the wood, went to the spot, bound his son, took the knife, and killed his son. Wait, hold on, he didn't kill his son. Understand the language here? Abraham had every intention of driving the knife into the heart of his son. He didn't think he was going to be stopped here. Now, we look at the end of the story and we go, hey, he was stopped. That's missing the narrative. He took the knife to slaughter his son. He was driving it into the heart of his son. And he could do all of this not because he suddenly came to some sort of courage on his part or some sort of epiphany in which he suddenly was like, okay, I'll do it now. He had this pre-existing condition that we call faith. He trusted God so completely that this, doing this was a no-brainer for him. 
because God was so trustworthy and had shown himself so trustworthy that he was willing to do whatever Yahweh asked him to do because he trusted him. His actions were just the inevitable result of his trust, right? Hebrews 11 has this very succinctly said. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. By the way, those words also mean he killed Isaac, basically. He offered up Isaac. And the one who had received the promises was offering up his only son, the son of promise, right? It was he to whom it was said, through Isaac your descendants shall be named. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. He just trusted God. He didn't know how it was going to work out. He had no clue how it was going to work out. He just knew God called him to it, and he did it. Because that God was worthy of his trust. We know verse 11. We like this part, right? But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not reach out your hand against the boy, and do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, you respect God deeply. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Skipping down to 15, it says, Then the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand, which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Do you hear the conditional language here? This is conditional. Honestly, if Abraham had not done what he did, the covenant would have been broken at that moment. But because Abraham said, you know what? My creator is worthy of my trust. I'm going to enter into this contractual agreement in which I'm going to do whatever he asked me to do. And he did the craziest thing Yahweh could have asked him to do. And it kept this covenant intact in which Yahweh was willing to do what he committed to do in the covenant. Because Abraham trusted him so completely. The point on your hand out if you want to fill it in is Abraham trusted God so completely that he was willing to do anything and give up everything at God's direction. Abraham trusted God so completely that he was willing to do anything and give up everything at God's direction. Abraham is this ultimate example for his descendants and for us of faithfulness to the covenant, faithfulness to the contract he had made to God. That he was willing to do whatever God asked him to do because he trusted him completely. Because he trusted completely, he had faith in his God. God gave him righteousness. Treated him like he had never sinned a day in his life. Treated him like he had always done right. Had Abraham always done right? No. And now we have this picture of a restored relationship with a human. This, this is a big turning point. This is a big moment in human history. 
And this idea of faith being credited as righteousness was a reality for the next generation, the generation after that, the generation after that, every generation since then, including our generation. Faith being credited as righteousness. Are you and I righteous? Do we do the right things? No, we've done plenty of the wrong things. Do we need to somehow do better? Do we need to somehow be better? Do we need to somehow get our religious ducks in a row, have our theology nailed down? Not for righteousness. Faith. The faith of Abraham is the faith we're called to today. And so when Jesus asks you know, his followers, if you want to follow me, give up everything, right? Hate your closest relationships, you know, those got to be less than, uh, give up all of your possessions, give up your own life and follow me. What's he calling for there? Faith. Trust me more than anything else in your life and come follow me. And we have some great examples of people who did that, right? And were changed and transformed by what he did. This is the reality for us. Galatians 3 says this, just as Abraham believed God, faithed God, trusted in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, therefore recognize that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, we're Gentiles, right, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. This is the gospel that was being preached to Abraham thousands of years ago, right? And it's just as true today as it was then. So that those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer, the faither, the truster. Do we trust him? That's the question. That's what we should do is we should look at Abraham and not go, wow, that's amazing. We, it is amazing, right? We should go, wow, that's the standard. Me trusting my life to him wholly and completely. What seemingly ridiculous thing in your life is he calling you to trust him in right now? He's trustworthy. Look at Abraham. Are you leaning into what he desires in your life? Do you even know what he desires of your life? Are you spending time in his word to understand what he desires out of your life? Are you willing to commit today? Forget yesterday, forget two weeks ago, forget months ago. Are you willing to commit today to go wherever he leads? To do whatever he asks? Whatever he asks? To leave all of your excuses behind and say, I'm just going to trust you. To lean into him, to trust him in deeper and deeper ways. If you are, you are a descendant of Abraham. Not physically, right? But because he was a believer. You're a believer, right? I'm going to finish just with this statement from the Apostle Paul. It is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe, must have faith in that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Do we believe that? 
Do we want to trust him with everything? Yeah, let's do that. Lord, uh, we are so thankful that you have proven yourself trustworthy. We want to mimic, we want to imitate Abraham. We want to be those who you call us to something, we say, sure. You ask us to step on, out on, in faith on things, and we go, you know what, God, you're trustworthy. We want to trust you so completely that we don't hold anything back in our lives. Where that kind of faith is just supernatural, it's just beyond us. Help us to be those people. Help us to be believers like Abraham was a believer. That we find you so trustworthy that wherever you decide to take us, we're willing to go. Pray this all your name.